Hey everyone, and welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Stephen. That is my book-loving wife, Liberty. We're a married couple with different interests, and we try to bring each other into our hobbies by discussing the latest news in both books and sports. Today's all about them books. And about time. <laughs> it's been long enough. Luckily, the sports episode wasn't so bad this week. And we're trying to keep everything short and sweet this week because we are recording on our anniversary, so I would like to get that done as soon as possible. You want to get the anniversary done as soon as possible? The recording. Oh, got gotcha. you. As soon as possible. I was going to say, wow, guys, uh, just to let you know, that hurt. <laughs> but in keeping it short and sweet, let's go straight into the book news for the week. Emma Thompson is set to star in the Why Didn't They Ask Evans adaptation with Jim Broadbent. They are said to play the British Aristocats. Nope. Aristocats. <laughs> Leave that Leave in. Leave that in for sure. <laughs> Aristocats. Love it. I just want to watch the movie. We have it. Why don't we? We can do that today. Maybe over like some delicious food or something. But the actors are set to play the British <laughs> Aristocrats. It's better. <laughs> Lord and Lady Marsham and their daughter Lady Frankie is said to be played by Lucy Boynton. Okay. This three-part series is based on Agatha Christie's novel of the same name that was published in 1934. The novel is centered around Bobby and Frankie's investigation of a suspicious death in the neighborhood. But in their attempt to solve the mystery, they almost end up getting murdered themselves. I was going to say, do they go ricky-ticky-ticky? No, probably not. That's too bad. The cast also includes Maeve Dermody, Daniel Ings, Jonathan Jules, Miles Jupp, Alistair Petrie, Paul Whitehouse, and Joshua James. We'll say those last two are probably the easiest names out of all of them. Yes. Yeah. Hugh Laurie will direct the series and star as Dr. James Nicholson, a macabre clinical director in a sanatorium. That sounds kind of familiar to what he did with House, doesn't it? I mean, it wasn't a sanatorium, but sure. Like the character, though, as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Why Didn't They Ask Evans is set to premiere sometime in 2022. They don't have anything nailed down yet. That's exciting. It sounds like it'll be good. You got a good cast, at least. and Yeah. It sounds like it's a, a good story to be based around, so it should be interesting. You know, I've read some of Agatha Christie, but this is one that I definitely haven't gotten to. Well, now you have to. Mm. Mercedes Lackey's Valdemar Universe fantasy books are being adapted for television under Radar Pictures. The intent is to adapt the books into a long-running series, is what the article said. The first season will be an adaptation of the last Herald Mage trilogy, which consists of Magic's Pawn, Magic's Price, and Magic's Promise. These books follow Van Yell, an openly gay but abused and persecuted son of a Valdemarin noble, Ted Field is set to executive produce the Valdemar series. Brittany Cavallaro, who is the author of the Charlotte Holmes books, will adapt along with Kit Williamson. Mercedes Lackey admitted in a statement that she's been hoping for decades that the last Harold Mage trilogy would be adapted for television. Neither a release date or platform information is available for the television series yet, so we'll just have to wait and see. The... Munoz Brothers? Munoz Brothers? I have no idea. How is it spelt? M-U-N-O-Z. Yeah, Munoz. Well, now I just butchered it because you were attempt. <laughs> You're welcome. Are tapped to adapt Kristen Helga Gunner's Daughter's book, 
Iceland's Mountain Factory for television. The YA novel was inspired by the Greta Thunberg movement. The novel is centered around a crew of young graduates from a southeastern Icelandic mountaineering academy who end up trapped in a storm. They take refuge in a hut where they set up a free state dedicated to nature and sustainability. Events take a dramatic turn when one of the members is found dead. I was going to say, this sounds pretty boring until that just happened. You're like, and they were found death. death. You're like, oh, okay. The series will be produced under Inner Voice Artist. Kristen Helga Gunner's daughter is a prominent Nordic author who has over 25 books published. And an English translation of this novel is not currently available in the U.S. So you have to read it in Icelandic? Or at least not English. Obviously. But if she's an Icelandic writer, it's probably an Icelandic. I mean, it might have been translated into something else that's not English. And the last bit of news is that The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which is the Hunger Games prequel novel by Suzanne Collins, is being adapted into a movie. Production for the movie is set to start sometime during early 2022. So as of now, the film's target release date will either be in late 2023 or early 2024. So this is like just starting to become a thing. So I was literally just about to say, so basically we wait till that comes out and then we watch the the movies because we haven't watched them yet. So we have not watched the movies. I would rather watch the movie for the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes than to read the book based off everyone's review. Okay. Because a lot of people said it's completely pointless. Okay. So interesting. Filmmaker Francis Lawrence is set to direct. The book, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, focuses on 18-year-old Coriolanus Snow before he became president of Pan Am. Attractive and charismatic, Snow belongs to a struggling family, and he believes he has a chance to improve his life when he is chosen as a mentor for the 10th Hunger Games. So very early on in the Hunger Games history. I kind of like the idea of the book, if that's what it's based around, because, like, you might understand Snow a little bit more before he goes off the deep end. Some people are just evil. Like, people need to accept that nowadays. I don't need necessarily, you know, his family got killed by the Hunger Games or something to explain why he's a jerk. But, like, I would love that, because that's who I am. I love backstories of, like... Just people that I'm like, I don't really understand him that well. I mean, this just reminds me of when they just redid 101 Dalmatians from Cruella DeVille's perspective. Like, you don't need it. (laughs) I can agree with that. I feel like that's a little bit different, but yeah. And then I've got a quick, I believe, 10 question, 11 question tag to do that just I saw for the first time this week. So I thought we could do it. It's the mood reader tag. Okay. And the first question is, do you consider yourself to be a mood reader? And I said, not even kind of. I have so many new releases and rereads and projects that I'm working on that it's not really possible for me just to pick things to read as I feel like reading certain genres or types of books. I'm definitely not a mood reader because I read for the podcast, so... And I tell you what to read, dang it. Well, we discuss about what we're going to read for the season before we ever do anything, so... Like, it was a pretty uneventful break for us, discussion-wise, but we did still talk about what we were going to read post-break, so... No? (laughs) Do you set a TBR list, and do you stick to them? You kind of answered that, like... 
No. Yeah, we do write TBR lists, well, yes, kind of. Kind of. We go, what do we want to read this season? And then write down all the books we want to read. Yeah. And uh, roughly what order we're going to read them. Obviously, you as well do that, but you do it with more books than me because you have time to do more books than I do. Yes, plus I also do a lot of bookish things that aren't this podcast, so that requires me to... Read more things. Read more things, and I do make a TBR that I mostly stick to for the month, but, like, yesterday was a really bad migraine day, so I wasn't able to, like, do a lot, so I finished a book that I wasn't supposed to, and then I picked up something else because I had the time. Right. So, like, that happens every once in a while. So I might deviate and add things, but I almost never go, you know what, I don't want to do that this month and move it to a different month or something like that. Right. Do books affect you emotionally? Does the mood of a book rub off on you? And I said, absolutely. And like, I'll talk about this book later, but I had this when I was reading When Sparks Fly this past week. And like, if the writing is good, I get completely sucked into whatever the narrator is feeling for the most part. If it's bad, not so much as with a book that I finished yesterday that we'll also talk about later. So for me, I feel like I get emotionally attached. I just don't think that it affects my emotion post. Like as soon as I set down the book, I'm my brain is like, right, right. we're back to normal reality. So like if something like really depressing or sad happens, yeah, I'm, I'm there in the moment. But as soon as I step away, my brain's like, oh, okay, we're back to life. Right, you can separate that out. Right. And I think that has a lot to do with my work kind of because like if I don't, I would go crazy. I'm certain. Yeah, yeah. So. When you're feeling sad, do you like to read sad books, happy books, or neutral books? I feel like if I'm sad, I don't want to read at all, usually speaking. Like, <laughs> I, I'm just not motivated to do it. I feel like a lot of times I, I would, A, either rather listen to music, pick up, like, a video game that I know is going to cheer me up at least a little bit. Like, right. And, and that's my go-to, because I'm really not established well enough to be like, this book will fix this. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I don't have that opportunity yet, I feel like. I said, for me, it depends on if I want to wallow in my emotions or not. So, like... <laughs> Sometimes I just have to feel sad and be sad for a day or two, and then I can move past it and get over it. Right. Sometimes I'll not want to, and then I'll be like, well, I can read a book that I've read in the past that I know that I like, and then it'll hopefully get me out of it. But for the most part, my mood doesn't really impact my reading. I just read whatever's next on my list, usually. That is true. I can speak to that. That is usually her process. Most often, do you use reading to escape, to learn, or to critically reflect? And for this, I put that I read to both escape and learn from other people's experience, but I don't think that I've truly critically read a book in a long time. Like, I mostly did that in high school or college, you know, academically, but I'm not going to pick up the hand on the wall and, like, critically examine how the author has done this to this to make it work out just this way for the plot or whatever. Yeah, and I can kind of agree with that. I feel like there's certain books, like, I I do like to read historical books, things based off of history, so, like... Gross. So, the learn part, I definitely understand. Like, I like to read to learn. So, like, a lot of times when you're reading a book, if I'm done reading for the week, what I'll do is I'll read, like, articles about things and, like, essays about stuff that's going on in the world just because I do like to learn things and relatively stay up on what's going on in the world. But at the same time, I feel like if I'm just reading a book, it's definitely just to escape. It's not for any other reason. Like, it's just to kind of just 
wall out the world for a minute and just enjoy it. But even then, like there was a study done, I don't know how many years ago, about how people who read Harry Potter as children are more empathetic towards other people in real life situations. That makes sense. And that's because they were learning from multiple people's perspectives and experiences and things like that. And reading as a whole, I feel like, teaches you to do that and to think critically, even if you're not analyzing a work or whatever. Right. What is a book that has made you laugh out loud? And mine, I've said, is not appropriate because it's The One by John Mars. And (laughs) this is because I was reading from a serial killer's perspective and they said or did something. And, like, they were very earnest in whatever was happening on the page and, like, being completely serious. And I just laughed out loud because, like, it was hilarious. And, like, given the context of the book and everything. But at the same time, I'm laughing at something a serial killer is doing as they're leaving a place where they just committed a murder. Like, Like, it's not a good look, I don't think. Like, that's the most recent one I feel like I've done that, like, serious, hardcore laughing. I feel like in this book that we're reading, well, the series we're reading right now, there's been some good moments that have legitimately made me laugh out loud a couple yeah, of yeah. times. And you just look at me like, where are you at? And I'm like, <laughs> I'll tell you because it's funny and you deserve to know. So, Well, like there was a line about Oscar and I guess they were talking about superpowers or something and they were making fun of Oscar's, like not his actual powers, but making up something. Yeah. And I remember you laughed at that. Yeah. So yeah, there's there are a lot of really good moments in, in these two books so far that have just had me legitimately laughing out loud. Yeah. What is a book that has made you cry or if you didn't cry, one that's really moved you? This is a tough one because I don't feel like uh, a book has truly moved me yet necessarily. Like I, I like a lot of the books I've read, but I'm not like, man, that was deep. I needed that. You well, know? and part of this is a symptom of what you're reading because right. I'm handing you a lot of things that I think you'll enjoy because of the action or the pacing or something. Right. And so I don't think necessarily you're getting the hard hitting, like super emotional stuff. Yeah, like, there, there's there been times where, like, obviously my emotions have been in play, but, like, like when people die or those types of things, and, like, that's really the only connect that I have for a lot of it. But mm-hmm. um, I think that comes a lot with, like, being a gamer as well, because, like, when a character dies in a video game that I'm attached to for, like, years and years and years through a series, then I'm like, oof, like, that's tough, but... I distinctly remember when I read Fred's death in Harry Potter, I threw my book. Like, (laughs) I didn't cry, but I threw the thing at the wall. I was so upset. Right. But for this one, I answered that I cried a lot when I read Second Chance Summer by Morgan Matson. I had lost my grandfather when I was about the main character's age in this, so I felt like I was processing a lot of my own grief as I was reading it. And so, I mean, there were sections of that book where the whole time I'm reading just tears down my face. When books tend to, like, hit you that close to home, like, there's nothing you can do to avoid it. Right. Yeah. What is a book that you don't even really know how you felt about it? Like, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't good, so you're just here. I don't feel like I've really ran into that yet. I know that I gave the last book in this series not a high enough rating based on your opinions, but... I'm just saying I didn't understand the rating. Not that it's not high enough. I still really liked the book, so it's not like I didn't enjoy it. Right, right. Just, I don't think I've really had one where I'm like, meh. You know, like, it's not bad, it's not good, it's just meh. 
I kind of answered this question a little differently because I said House of Dragons by Jessica Cluis. And it's got less to do with the writing and more to do with the author because I was really enjoying this book. But when I only had about 60 pages left, I was enlightened about some things that the author has done on the internet that weren't great and some bullying she was doing on Twitter. So I feel like I enjoyed reading the book, but I can't allow myself to feel that way about it anymore because of who the author is as a person. Yeah. And so it's just one of those things where it's like, I don't know. Right. Are you more likely to read on a sunny day or a cloudy day? We live in Texas, so more often than not, I... Gosh, it's kind of a mixed situation. I don't know if there's really one per the other, but I would say sunny day, usually speaking. On cloudy days, I just want to sleep usually because, like, I work a lot, so when I I'm, feel like most days you want to sleep. If I could sleep like a bear and hibernate during the winter, I would do it through the <laughs> holidays in a heartbeat, but obviously what I do for a living would not ever allow that, so. Plus, the way your body works probably wouldn't allow that either. I don't know. I'd find a way. <laughs> I said both. Both is good because my peak reading mood is like a full-blown thunderstorm with fire in the fireplace and a candle on the table, but I read every day. Right. So, like, it doesn't matter what outside it's doing. I will be reading. Yeah, as long as your inside is, a house is lit properly and, like, it's quiet, like, it's just what you need, it seems like, for the most part. Kind of relates to the next question, I guess, a little bit, too. Yeah, because the next question is, do you usually set the mood when you read with, like, music or lights or smells or whatever? I don't think you have, like, a set way of doing it necessarily, but, like, you are notorious for doing, like, the sound effect YouTube videos for, like, hours on end when you right. read. Right, ASMR videos. And every now and again, like, I'll come home while she's reading and the candle will be burning, so, like... I don't usually do it because I read every day and that'd be a bit tedious but every once in a while I'll be like it's dark and stormy outside I can light a candle turn on an ASMR and like right it'll be super cozy that evening as I'm reading but usually I just read yeah thanks to the high heat and uh the hornets that have decided to make home on our porch we really have not gone out to get wood lately for things so fireplaces have to be on TVs well yeah the heat definitely doesn't help that no I know you have to do, like, your music while you're reading because you can't focus otherwise, which makes no sense to me, but... Well, the issue is for me a lot of times when I'm reading, you're reading a lot, and that's usually the case, and I I love you, but you're notorious for just blurting things out about what's going on in your book, and I'm sitting there like, I'm in the middle of a scene of things going (laughs) on right now. Like, if I don't have my noise-canceling headphones on, I, I feel like I get interrupted, and at the same time, like, a lot of times... Like, the cat will cause heck if I don't have my headphones on. I don't understand why, but, like, she seems to just be like, oh, we can distract Dad right now. Let's cause heck. And so, like, I I always put the noise-canceling headphones on just so that I can kind of really go into the world, you know? And when I'm listening to music, I'm usually not listening to a lot of stuff with lyrics, as it were, anyways. Like, it's normally either softer music or, like, really quiet, like, techno or EDM, just quiet stuff that'll keep me just... In the world. Because that's what I think of when I think of techno. Yeah. And last question is, can you leap from book to book or do you need a buffer time between? I haven't really tried. Um, I feel like I probably could because I'm pretty good at separating worlds in my brain. But my main concern is that like I would mix up names because that's no- 
notoriously what I do. Like, I'm bad with names. Mm -hmm. And so, like, my main concern would be, like, oh, why are they calling... Oh, that's right. They're calling this person by their name. Like, I don't know why I didn't connect the dots. So I feel like that would be my one flaw. I said it depends on what I'm reading. If it's something that's short or not super complex, I can jump between books. But otherwise, I need at least a few hours between books, if not longer. And like yesterday when I had a rough migraine, I ended up reading two things. One I completed at like five in the afternoon and the other one I completed at like 6.30. So there was no buffer time between the two. Right. And it was fine because they were so different and they were both smaller things that weren't super complex or with magic systems or like too much of the same thing. Right. But that was the tag. And now we'll move on to what I've been reading. Like I said, I had a migraine on Saturday, which is yesterday for us. And I just could not do much of anything except for laying there reading. Right. Because I get tinnitus with my migraines. So it's really hard for me to focus on anything I have to listen to. So that's what I did instead. But... At the very beginning of the week, I read Wind Sparks Fly by Helena Hunting. It's a book I read through NetGalley that releases on September 21st and is available for pre-order now. It's an adult contemporary slash romance that I ended up rating 3.75 stars. It's about a girl named Avery and her roommate Declan who are thrown for a loop when Avery is in a car accident and he becomes her caregiver. During the weeks of recovery, lines start to blur for the pair between friends and lovers. And it's got the friends to lovers trope. It's got the, oh my God, they were roommates trope. (laughs) For the most part, I really enjoyed this. There were a couple of things that I didn't enjoy later on down the line. And one of which was that I felt like the resolution and how that happened was a little heavy handed. And the author was trying to make a very like solid after-school special kind of statement there towards the end, and I'm just not there for it. If I'm reading an, oh my god, they're roommates kind of story, I'm not there for that kind of heavy-handed, like, here you go, here's the main thing to take away here. But still, it was so good throughout most of the novel that it's, for me, a really high rating for romance. So definitely worth checking out. And then, because I wanted it to be fall, I decided to read a YA mystery thriller. So I read The Initial Insult by Mindy McGinnis, which is a 2021 release. I believe it came out in February. We talked about it when it came out. Yeah. It's book number one in the Initial Insult duology. I rated this one 3.75 stars as well. I would have rated it higher, but the ending was a little unsatisfying, and the logic in the last, like... 30% was flawed. In this book, Tress Montour's life was turned upside down the night that her parents disappeared. Felicity Tornado has spent the years since the Montour's disappearance trying to make sure everyone forgets that she was in the car with them when it happened. Tress is tired of the unanswered questions, so during a party one night, she decides that she will have her answers or she will have revenge. And this is the one that is based off the works of Edgar Allan Poe. And you see it a lot here in the book through people's names, the names of the town, but also through what actually happens in the plot of this one. And what I enjoyed so much was that despite being a YA novel, it still went there. 
it was still that dark and that gritty and like that's a, good. A lot of the things that you come to expect for works from Edgar Allan Poe are really input in the story, and I really appreciated that. Because a lot of stuff that you expect to be dark and gritty in YA just aren't willing to go there because of the age range of the audience. And so I really appreciated this one. I would say it's an upper YA. Like, don't hand this to a 14-year-old to read, in my opinion. But also, I'm a 32-year-old woman, so what do I know? Right. And after I finished that, I read Arch Enemies by Marissa Meyer that we'll discuss mostly later, but this is a 2018 release, and it's a YA fantasy sci-fi, book number two in the Renegades duology, and I originally rated this one 4.75 stars. It's 0.25 stars less than what I rated book one. In this book, Nova is an anarchist who is working to take down the Renegades from the inside. In this one, the Anarchists still have a secret weapon that Nova believes will protect her. The Renegades also have a strategy for overpowering the Anarchist, but both Nova and Adrian understand that it could mean the end of Gatlin City as they know it. Like I said, we'll discuss that later when we talk about what you've been reading. Very soon, as it turns out. So, And then, like I've said a thousand times now, I wasn't doing great on Saturday, so I read all of The Princess Diaries by Meg Cabot. This is a 2000s release. It's a YA technically because the main character is 14, but it reads like a middle grade. It's so easy. It's book number one in the Princess Diaries series, and I ended up rating it two stars. So, like, (laughs) yikes. The book that the movie is based off for this one, everyone knows the movie. Even I know the movie, so that clarifies that. But it's pretty different from the movie from what I read in that first one. We have an awkward freshman named Mia Thermopolis who is shocked when her father reveals that he is the crown prince of Genovia. And this is one of those books that I have on my 40 books before 40 list. I'm glad I read it, but at the same time, like, I could have done without reading it as well. Right. And Mia was really annoying because, like, supposedly she had done all these things with her dad, who at the time she had thought was, like, a political advisor for the country of Genovia. And she had had a lot of experiences visiting her dad and her grandmother in France and all this other stuff. But somehow she is the most naive person I've ever read from. <laughs> and it was really annoying. And for me, as a 32-year-old woman reading a YA novel about a 14-year-old who acts like a 12-year-old, all of that was really frustrating because I could see from the adult's perspectives, but I'm reading Mia's diary. And, like, she's talking about how mad she is that her mom wants her to come home after she ran out of the house without permission in the middle of a fight. And it's like, you're a 14-year-old in New York City, and you're just running out of the house because you can't stand a fight with your parents. Of course she wants you to come home. Yeah. Like, what? Go figure. And just stuff like that. And, like, I'm sure at her age I would be upset with how the adults in her life are treating her or me if I was in that situation. But still, just at this age, reading this was very not great. Was the movie shot in New York City? The movie was set in San San Francisco. Francisco. That's what I thought. And the dad was dead in the movie. Yeah. And the grandma was a lot better in the movie than she is in the book. Which is hard to believe because she was pretty direct in the movie as well. She's a real... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Words we're not allowed to say on the podcast. in In the book, so... Gotcha. Honestly, 
if you're above the age range for this book, I would just say don't bother and just watch the movie. Right. I think if I had read this as a child, it would have been more of my foundational reading than obviously it would be now. So, like, I think I would have read all of these really easily if I was in middle school or younger high school. Well, you would have been able to relate with it, I think, a little bit more than you do now. Whereas, like, you're well into your adult years and you're like, why are you being just a... You're such a child. Annoying child. child. Yeah. I do think that the movie does a better job with the side characters and making them more well-rounded and actually seeming like teenagers versus the book. Okay. But also the book is really short, so I feel like that's part of the reason they aren't explored better. Yeah. And shortly after I finished that, I decided to read something that I was hoping to like a lot so I could A, knock it off my TBR shelf, but B, be in a better post-reading mood. Gotcha. And so I picked up Lumberjanes Volume 1, Beware the Kitten Holy by Noelle Stevenson. It's a 2015 release and a YA comic. It's volume number one in the Lumberjanes series. I ended up rating this one four stars, and I feel like that's about as good as I can get with comics because I love this one, but it's too short, and, like, I want more story, and, like, I need more information about these characters, and for me, I think a four is probably the highest a comic can get from me. Well, the reality is, like, with comics, often they will create the first generation of comics and then realize that they really haven't given that big backstory. So, like, at least with all the Marvel and DC characters, you always get, like, these prequel comics that come out post the first generation of whatever went on, so. Well, I don't think that'll happen here, but they do have 19 volumes currently out, so. You've got some catching up to do. Right. If I want to continue on, I'm sure there's more story with these girls that I can read. I would imagine so. But this one, I'll give a quick synopsis from Goodreads. At Miss Conzilla Thisquin Penequequel Thistle Crumpets Camp for Hardcore Lady Types. God almighty, that's awful sounding. Things are not what they seem. Three-eyed foxes, secret caves, anagrams. Luckily, Joe, April, Mal, Molly, and Ripley are five rad, butt-kicking best pals determined to have an awesome summer together. And they're not going to let a magical quest or an array of supernatural critters get in the way. The mystery keeps getting bigger, and it all begins here. And I really loved all the girls, but I want to be April as a person because she's just, like, the head of this group of girls and, like, super strong and tough, but, like, she's super feminine looking in the drawings. Okay. But I guarantee I'm more like Ripley because Ripley, anytime something is mentioned, just goes off on it. Like, they're given the warning, beware the kitten holy, and she goes, I love kittens. Like, that's me. That's my brain. That's you truly in a nutshell. And they talk about foxes, and they're like, I love foxes. So I'm pretty sure I'm Ripley as a person. (laughs) But it was really good. If any of my friends or family wanted to get me the rest of the volumes, I would enjoy that for a Christmas present, I guess, at this point in the year. What I'm hearing is I should be buying you these volumes. Well, I won't buy them for myself, but I do want to read them. Gotcha. As for what I plan on reading next, I have two things I think I'm going to be able to get through this week, but also I'm going to start something that's a little denser, so I won't finish it. 
First up is Artemis Fowl by Owen Colfer. It's a middle grade fantasy novel that was published in 2001, so I'm worried a little bit about having issues with it the way I did The Princess Diaries. But this is part of my 40 books before 40 list. I feel like this came out at the exact wrong time for me to ever read it when I was younger, but I knew people in the younger grades who were reading and loving Artemis Fowl when it came out, so that's why it's on my list. In this book, 12-year-old Artemis Fowl is a millionaire genius and criminal mastermind, but he doesn't know what he's taken on when he kidnaps a fairy. And I have started this one technically, I'm a few chapters in, and I do think this is a little young for me at this point, but I also like the world and the world building so far, so I'm hoping to enjoy it more as the book goes on. I've I've heard really good things about this book, so I... Like, it's definitely something down the line I would enjoy reading, I feel like, but I will see, I guess. Yeah. And then one that I'm in the exact right age range for is Love Under Construction by M.C. Cerny. It's an adult contemporary slash romance that published in 2017, and it's a romance between a woman and her surly contractor when he's working on her house. And apparently she's seen a lot of HGTV, so she thinks she knows what she's talking about, of course. Obviously. That'll be fun to see. It is part of the anthology that I bought back in January that had 10 first books in series of romances and rom-coms. But I think the one I'm most excited to pick up this week that I'm probably barely going to get to read any from is Red Seas Under Red Skies by Scott Lynch. I'm only going to start it. If I get more than 100 pages into this one, I'll be ecstatic. It's an adult fantasy novel that published in 2007, and it's book number two in the Gentleman series. Okay. I don't want to know a ton going into it based off of how the first book finished, but I mostly know that I'm nervous. Okay. (laughs) It's about Locke Lamora, an orphan kid who was raised under the tutelage of a master con artist. He and his friend Gene are going to run some more cons in a different city because things went to hell in the first one. But it's also really dense, so I'm assuming it's going to take me a full week from the day I pick it up to the day I finish it. So we'll see. But I think that's the book I'm most excited for for the entire month, so I'm going to be happy no matter how long that takes. Sounds good. I guess it's time to discuss what you have been reading. Renegades. I'm kidding. Arch enemies, as it turns out. Jeez, Louise. Yay for headaches. It's book number two in the Renegade series by Marissa Meyer. That's what I meant. (laughs) We got there eventually. Yeah. Team effort. Way to go. We'll try to keep the synopsis of what you've read so far, which is the first third, short and sweet, because it is our anniversary, and I'd like to do things that aren't recording the podcast. Like going to explore things and eat food. Those are nice things to do on an anniversary. They are. Yes. But we start out with this book opening up to Adrian and his patrol squad team thing, staking out a hospital where they know that someone is in there trying to take medicine. Right. And it turns out to be a crew who's going to different hospitals, stealing meds, and then putting them out on the street illegally. Yeah, trying to make some quick money, more or less. Yes. And during their takedown of the team, they get split up a couple of times. 
And Oscar and Ruby basically get the non-prodigies who are on this team. Right. And that leaves Adrian and Nova and Dana. 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 With getting the prodigy named Hawthorne. Yeah. Who has a bunch of appendages with thorns on them. Correct. She's able to basically make these giant spikes that can cut you open pretty good. Yeah. While they're going after Hawthorne, it turns out that Adrian has to become the sentinel. To be able to catch up to them because he fell a little behind in the process of locking up one of the non Right. Because one of the non-prodigies had taken a barista hostage. Right. And... He had to help the, basically, negotiation, or whatever you want to call it, takedown of that non-prodigy and got behind while Nova went ahead to go after Hawthorne. Yeah, which ended up being a smack from the cane from our good boy Smokestream, so. But while he's running after her, she lands on a barge in the middle of the river, so he follows her onto it, trying to take her down, but she is able to throw the sentinel into the river, which is a problem because his suit is Is, not airtight, watertight. I was going to say, A, it's not watertight. B, it's not lightweight or floating capable. It's just metal. So he's just like, to the bottom of the river I go. Right. And, I mean, it's easy enough for him to get out of his suit. And so he ends up being fine on the side of the river, but he's lost Hawthorne. Right. And he almost gets caught here by the council, which was fun to see. Cause it's like hiding underneath the bridge like, you don't see me. <laughs> it's like, come on, man. But they got most of the medicines back. They got most of the people from this team. They only didn't get Hawthorne. So it's a somewhat successful mission for them, despite all the destruction of property. I was going to say, they probably were pretty well deemed that it was a, a successful mission just you know, losing the one prodigy, which obviously is kind of the main goal these days for the renegades as a whole, is to get just any prodigy that's just out there not following their rules right. locked up. So, And so Adrian meets up with everyone getting medical attention after all of this stuff has happened. It's kind of funny to see Ruby and Oscar and how they're interacting, particularly after he saved that girl who's so thankful to be saved by a real renegade. Yeah, he's sitting there trying to make her jealous to an extent. Let's just call it what it is. And, like, I don't think he's trying to be rude about it. I think it's just more of, like, poking at her more than anything. Well, yeah. Yeah. Because, like, they haven't admitted to their feelings to each other. But it's blatantly apparent that they exist from both perspectives. Well, and even Adrian and Nova's feelings are very obvious because Dana just looks at all four of them as like, you're driving me nuts and walks away. Yeah. (laughs) All four of you. I can't deal with it anymore. We also see a conversation between the Dread Warden and Adrian about how, like, the point of superheroes is not to put their lives in danger and all this stuff. And, like, a very dad conversation with his son, who is a superhero. So I enjoyed that moment. And the back and forth was pretty intense in that, like, it wasn't, like, obviously, like, they were going to fight each other. But, like, each of them was just taking just daggers of, like, this is the reason you do this and blah, 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 and back and forth. And it was, it was an interesting conversation to stay up on, needless to say. But that's also the moment whenever he tells Adrian that they're going to have a different team try to deal with Hawthorne, that he's not allowed. 
Well, the big thing for Adrian is he gets overly invested in things. So, yeah. like, he... If the target was his target at any point in his life, it seems like he's still, like, that is my focus to get this person locked up. Like, right. you saw it with Nightmare in the previous book. So, it's just, like, go figure that it's the same way here. But we do start to see that Adrian thinks maybe Nightmare isn't dead. Like, this is the first, like, inkling of that that we see in that conversation with his dad. And in the next chapter, we see that there is a mandatory meeting at the Renegades headquarters for all Renegades, which isn't something that really happens. Normally, some patrol teams will get called or research and development, but not everyone all at once. Yeah, it ends up being for multiple reasons that we find out, obviously. One of which is to co- accommodate Nova for her action against Ingrid by shooting her in the head. Yeah. And making sure that she wasn't able to set off more bombs and injure more people and for her quick thinking, basically. Yeah. So, and then the second one is pretty much the reason we all expected the meeting to actually exist. At least I did anyways. Yeah. So, that's cool. It's announced that Agent in is basically ready to go according to the council nova has some doubts because how many people have they tested it on what are the side effects what happens like where is the scientific method what is going on yeah they bring in the puppeteer to test it in front of everybody so they can see the actual thing going on i just love that the puppeteer all the way to the end was just like i'm gonna fight this is any way that I can. And I'm right, like, bro, yeah. you're literally in the headquarters for Renegades. You're not going to get away with doing things like this. I think he just wanted to do what he could while he could. I know that he didn't know what was coming. Yeah. But he's like, I'm going to do something. You're here. I'm here. I have powers. I'm going to do something against you. It was right almost now. successful because it was Magpie, right, that tried to jump at one of the council, council members. Yeah. yeah. And that was the moment that we see Dana kind of question something that Nova does. Because it was clear as day that Nova saw everything going down and she did nothing to stop it. Right. And Dana is obviously the very observant one. She's the one who's done all the like stakeouts and Surveillance. surveillance stuff for the team before Nova showed up. But at the same time, she doesn't really get into it about that. She just kind of holds that information to herself, but you can see something sort of passing over her face when she's looking at Nova once that had happened. And I mean, also, you got to realize at this point, Nova is really conflicted because like she just got an accommodation from the council for something she did as a renegade for the renegades. But that's not why she's here. That's not the point. The point is not to be a renegade. The point is to find a way to take them down from the inside. Right. And so... Like, she likes the fact that they did that because it means they trust her. But at the same time, she doesn't want all of that. At the same time, it does get open more doors for her, obviously. And and I think that's a big thing. True. And at the end of that whole little meeting, you see that their group is very well split down the middle as to whether they think this neural agent that is clearly taking apart the capability of being a prodigy is even, like... Legal or safe to use based on their own rules? Well, and not only that, but is is it moral? Like, are, are we still good guys if we take away people's powers without having, like, a trial first? Because they announced that patrol teams are going to have this out on the streets. To immediately nullify the issues. Right. Yeah. And so how can this be moral when, like, 
there are gray situations in the world, as Nova points out to Adrian. Like, there could be a situation where it looks like this, but what's actually happening is different. But at that point, you've already neutralized the person. Like, yeah. As well, too, like, they they very well could be doing something bad only because they had to in that situation. and For a good reason. Right. And for all they know, basically, like, they're they're ruining this person's life. Like, maybe they use their powers for good, and you just don't know it because of the one situation you found them in. Or the one side of the story you hear before you show up yeah. colors your perspective of things. So we both see that Adrian and Nova have questions, and they want this to be handled differently. But... At the same time, they both feel like they can't communicate that very well because obviously Nova doesn't want to get caught. Adrian also has a secret he's trying to keep from his team, so they both feel like they can only say so much to oppose this. Yeah, it does kind of lead into some comparisons of like police brutality that's going on in our world to an extent, like right. overreactions to what might be the right solution to the problem. And so, like, it's that portion of it was tough for me to read just because. Man, like, there's a lot of it already going on around here in the United States, let alone outside of the U.S. So it's just like, wow, you know. But also, you did have a solid point from Dana, who's like, villains don't get rights. And to a degree, I can... Kind of understand that, too. Understand where she's coming from, because it's like, if they're a bad person doing bad things, then they shouldn't have rights to have these powers. But at the same time, you shouldn't have these people out there on the streets who can just do this willy-nilly and abuse their power. You should have a system set in place where, like, there's a trial. Then a jury decides whether to neutralize this person or not. Like, you should have steps in place. Yeah, the only counter-argument to something like that is is kind of the closed-caption TV thing that goes on in the UK. What if the cameras only see you beating the guy up, but you don't realize that the person just stole from you and you're trying to catch him or something like that, and it's like, you're the bad guy now. Like, it's just the way it is. So I kind of understand her perspective, but at the same time, there's a lot of misconceptions that can come to exist. But also, you have to realize that the council still has the weight of the city on their shoulders. Yeah. And they feel like this is going to be the thing that gets them to a better place with the city. Yeah. And gets them more respect and therefore the ability to take time on other things that they need. Right. But Adrian does talk to his dad after that about wanting to ask the puppeteer some questions. And his dad's like, why? We already got Nightmare. There's no reason to talk to him. But Adrian wants to address questions he has about whether Nightmare is actually dead. And to clarify, this conversation wasn't like I open conversation. Like the the dad was legit getting on an elevator to get away from him, and he just forced himself on. Like, no, this is not done yet. Yeah. So you start to see kind of the rebellious side of Adrian a little bit more in that scene. So you're kind of seeing his character arc start to change a little bit, which I actually like a lot. Yeah. But a few hours later, Adrian's in the room with the puppeteer doing an individual interview. The therapist that they have for the puppeteer is there, but it's basically just Adrian questioning him. Yeah. And the therapist is just really there to be like, you know, I think you need to back off or leave him alone or whatever because he's just gone through this traumatic event of losing all of his powers. Yeah. Needless to say, he might not be in the best of moods Related to that situation. Or mental space in general, yeah. Right. And basically, during this interview, the puppeteer doesn't give him much of anything to go off of, but says that if he can have his puppet, Hetty, then he'll tell him something he wants to know. And so Adrian 
leaves with that sort of pending question because he has to get it authorized first before he can agree to do that. And in the next chapter, we see a conversation between Honey, Leroy, and Nova as they're going to the cathedral to visit Ace. And Honey's like, admit it, you like this kid. And she's like, gross, no I don't, he's a renegade. And Honey's like, everyone loves power. And like, Honey is just like on it. And I love her in this scene. But it really shows Nova as a whole, like, really being as naive and young as she is right. about the situation. She's like, no, it's not. It's not that. And it's like, yes, it is. Just open your eyes, stupid. It's right in front of your face. And, like, she is naive because, like, obviously she's never dated someone before. She's never been in a situation to date someone before. So she hasn't really gotten crushes and all of this other stuff. Yeah, because growing up she was just around adults all the time. There weren't really any, like... Prodigy kids her age around. But in this meeting that they all have in the cathedral, she's breaking everything down that has happened recently with Agent N and all the stuff they have to watch out for. And that she got this accommodation and everyone's really proud and like, you got him where you want him, basically. And she talked about how the puppeteer was neutralized and everyone's just like, okay, "Okay." and yeah. They're like, he was pretty crazy, so... And, like, you didn't like it when he used his powers anyway, so, like, what's the problem? Nobody liked it when he used his powers. Everyone just sort of reinforces the fact that the anarchists are usually only out for themselves. Like, they might be, like, this found family and, like, this group together, but if you die tomorrow, I'm not going to cry about it. Yeah. If you lose your powers tomorrow, it's whatever. We'll move on and keep still trying to do the things that we need to do to get rid of... The Renegades. Right. And she also has to explain sort of where Agent N stemmed from, and in doing so, has to give up information on the bandit, or Max, as you know. This is the moment where she's like, doesn't really want to tell them. Like, she has to, of course, but, but like, part of her doesn't want to give up Max, because he's a 10-year-old kid. The reality is, though, Ace already knows who Max is, because that's how he lost the right. fight. So it's not really like an eye-opener for anybody but the other two. Yeah. Or I should say three, Three, I guess. Yeah, with phobia. But they come up with a plan that Leroy is going to make a decoy sample of the substance so when they have their training on it later in the week at the Renegade's headquarters, she can swap out the fake one with a real one so he can look at the chemical properties and possibly be able to... To work out like an antidote or something. An antidote or their own version of it that they can stock up on to get rid of the Renegade's. Right. She also lets them know that she will soon start working in the artifact warehouse. I was going to say just the warehouse with the old magical things, but that didn't quite describe it right. No, the artifact warehouse. It reminds me a little bit of the show I started to watch a long time ago and stopped, uh, Warehouse 13. I've never even heard of it, so... It's a warehouse with a bunch of magical artifacts. I, I, I figured. Yeah. But they also make a plan for her working there to find out more about the helmet, how to get it, how to bring it back to Ace Anarchy. And we see her first day in Weapons and Artifacts, and that was a lot of fun and really cute. I like Snapshot and um, Callum. Yeah. They're a lot of fun. Callum is this guy who's just always sort of happy and cheerful and always wants to show you all the things and tell you all the stories and, like, very into his job, over which the, I, I would say over the top into his job, which is good. But she also learns how things get checked out and, like, the process is there for that so that maybe in the future she can take something. 
which she ends up constantly questioning where, well, not constantly, but ends up directing them to the more rare artifacts. Right. And, like, I think a normal person wouldn't find that suspicious either. Not just Callum not finding it suspicious because he wants to tell the stories, but also, like, I think a normal person would be like, well, I've heard about this. What about this? You know? There's also a confrontation between Magpie and Nova where Magpie is bringing in things from the Cosmopolis Park. Nova ends up finding her mask in with the stuff. And since nothing's been checked in yet, she's just like, yoink. Right. I'll take that back. (laughs) And we see a lot of really cool stuff while she's working in the weapons and artifacts. And we hear all of their stories. And that's a lot of fun. And Callum also ends up showing her the restricted section of the collection. And she's questioning the security that they have. Because she's like, is this even secure at all? Why are there only cameras? Right. And then he basically goes, you'd be pretty much stupid to try to steal something here with the fact We're that... We're in like, Renegade's headquarters. Yeah. Like, this is as safe as you can get. By the time you get on the elevator, they'd probably already be waiting outside of whatever elevator floor you come out of. Right. That's when she sees Ace Anarchy's helmet, which is completely wrapped in a box or a cube of chromium made by Captain Chromium. And so Callum lets her know that the only way for anyone to get in would probably be Captain Chromium himself. So it's completely safe and secure and there's really no way to get into it. And then we see Adrian try to find Hetty, who's the puppeteer's doll, and he gets to the subway tunnels where the anarchists were staying and nothing's there because the team took everything. They cleaned it out. And so he realizes he's going to have to go look for it at the Renegades headquarters. And then we get the sidekick Olympics. That was fun. I really liked that one. I did too. We're not all the way through it yet, but uh, we kind of ended like right in the middle of it based on my understanding. So hopefully there's more because I would love to read more about it. It was interesting. So this is basically a field day sort of event with non-prodigy kids so they're called the sidekick olympics and they have a bunch of different obstacle courses and like archery and different things that they can do and they're all dressed up in superhero costumes and we see adrian's patrol team and nova and everyone they're watching ruby's twin brothers competing and it's just really cute Yeah. And I really enjoy that. You also get some cute moments between Oscar and Ruby and Nova and Adrian. So that was good to see. But at that park, you also see Nova trying to get information out of Adrian about, is there any way this could be unsecure? And like, she phrases it in a way that it sounds like she's worried about the safety of the helmet. When really she's just trying to pry into a way to get it out of there. She wants the weakness so she can use it. Right. We also see this tiny little moment between Dana and Nova where Dana takes a dig at something Nova has done before that she realizes now is a little sketchy. Yeah. And she's like, no random fainting spells either, so I guess I'm good as new. And Nova's like, uh, whoops. And Adrian kind of questions that, and she's like, I never faint, so I don't know. It was the weirdest thing. And Nova's like, classic case of overexertion. That must be what it was, trying to cover herself. And then you have the super awkward scene. Where Nova is talking to Adrian about her little sister that she lost. Mm-hmm. And she gets more into the truth than she had in the past, telling people about how she developed her powers. And then she realizes, oh, I'm getting too close to the truth. I better not continue on that path. 
And they also discover a statue in the Glen when they're in the park as well, and that's cute. There's a whole backstory for both of them related to that statue. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a moment that really brought them closer together, and hence why she was like, maybe I give him a kiss. And And he did not allow that to happen. No, he did the nerdy panic guy thing where it was like, oh god, oh no, oh no, oh god, oh. If you ever did that when I tried to kiss you, I don't think I'd ever try to kiss you again. So what I'm hearing is, try it once, see if you're telling me the truth or if you're full of it. Yeah. (laughs) Is it kind of like if you're never going to talk to me again or... I'm kidding, of course. I did say that to you at one point when we were dating. Yes. But it was a joke. I didn't know it would be thrown in my face five years later. Well, congratulations. You're welcome. But up next, you're going to read the middle third of Arch Enemies. And what I realized this week is... I read this in two days during the week, and so I don't know if you're going to be able to stop after the middle third. We'll find out on the next episode of Pucks and Pages book episode. (laughs) You're such a (laughs) twerp. But in the meantime, make sure you guys are checking out all of our social media, which will be linked in the show notes. And we'll see you next Tuesday for the first week of soccer in the world. Not in the world ever, but... But for the new season. Yes. Yes. But in the meantime, guys, thanks for hanging out with us on our five-year wedding anniversary, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.